Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. Are you ready to take your life to the most incredible level possible in 2016? Well, we've had three sold out wellness summits these last few years, but honestly, nothing comes close to the wellness breakthrough and we have just three spots remaining. Your favorite wellness couch experts, the wellness guys, Karen Smith, Kim Morrison, Quirky Cookings, Joe Witten, Marcus Pierce, and of course, Carl Brock are gathering in the Dandenong Ranges for three days and two nights for one incredible event. If you want possibly the greatest peer group in health and wellness to help you catapult your life to the next level, then we'd love to see you at the Wellness Breakthrough from February 5th to the 7th. But again, there's only three spots available. Entry to the breakthrough is by application only, and to apply, simply email your contact details to marcus at thewellnesscouch.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello and how are you going? Welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey. And I'm so excited to bring you a show from my very new location at the Sunshine Coast. So this is my very first recording and we're bringing you the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And today I am very lucky to be interviewing Pete Smith, who is a psychologist who works in rural New South Wales. And Pete is also what we call a Camilleroy man. Pete is an Indigenous psychologist and part of the Indigenous Psychologist Advisory Group. So I'm so grateful to have him spend time with us and share with us his knowledge about Indigenous people and mental health. So welcome, Pete. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me on your program. I'm so glad to have you and I'm so looking forward to hearing your story and all the information you've got to share. So tell us all about your experiences, about how you became a psychologist. Okay. Um, as you already said, I, I live in the northwest, around the northwest plains of New South Wales, um, uh, in, which is Camilleroy country, which is the, the, the land of, of my mother's ancestry. Um, and uh, I... Uh, been very fortunate to work among the Aboriginal people here as well as the, the, the non-Aboriginal community. Um, I actually didn't grow up on country. I'm a, I'm a city kid actually. Grew up in Sydney and, uh, and lived a lot of time on the Central Coast. But um, the reason for that was that um, my mum was actually removed during the time of the Stolen Generations. And so um, as a displaced person, um, I was born and raised in the city when, uh, when really my origins are, are elsewhere. So um, I'm a little bit of a, a misfit in some sense. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of how I, I got into what I'm doing in terms of psychology, probably goes back a long way. Um, like for most of us, uh, it wasn't what I thought I'd be doing when I finished high school. Um, and I had a few other um, irons in the fire at the time. And I uh, was living and, and working in Sydney and I actually got into um, into ministry and I uh, was working in ministry for, for quite a while around in hospitals and um, I was actually uh, I'm actually the second um, ordained person uh, after Patrick Dodson in Australia um, uh, who's an indigenous person um, and uh, anyway um, I was working uh, doing a lot of hospital work and I found I really had a uh, an, an affection, a, a real um, connection in working with 
in hospitals um, and uh, and hospices for for people um, coming to the end of their lives. And uh, I enjoyed that kind of work, as strange as that might sound. So I guess working with people for me goes back a long way. Um, and uh, although I was working in um, large city hospitals, um, it I think was the grounding for me. And then. Um, after a, uh, a number of years, I, I left ministry and then I decided, well, what do I do now? So I went back to university and then got my um, um, psychology qualifications and um, and went from there, uh, working in a number of um, government uh, departments, community services and juvenile justice, working with some people who were probably struggling through their lives for one reason or another. And uh, I uh, worked for quite a while with um, Aboriginal communities, even in, in city areas. And um, it gave me this, uh, I, I think, a, a real desire to be working more intensely with Aboriginal people. Um, and it's a little bit like um, when um, things happen to us, they happen to us out of the blue. I wasn't expecting to be moving and, and working up in the northwest of the state. I uh, thought that I'd probably be spending the rest of my life around the coastal areas of New South Wales, probably around Sydney or the Central Coast and Newcastle. But um, my partner actually um, got a, a teaching placement uh, in Gunnedah. And so, of course, we packed up and we went. Um, and uh, I thought, well, look, I'll, I'll probably be able to get work as a psychologist. And it did happen that way. And uh, and then I found myself launched into the, the local... Um, matters of, of the local people, particularly the indigenous people, where I landed in Gunnedah, and then eventually Quirindai, where I, I work. Um, and uh, that's been a, a real formative experience for me. Um, I had had some experience, as I said, in the past, but um, being accepted into a, another community uh, takes some time, and I, I had to... Um, had to take time for them to get to know me and for me to get to know them and to not be too pushy. And I had to learn to step back and be very patient um, and understand that here were many people who had had perhaps many years of uh, individuals and agencies beating the path to their door and uh, sometimes with not very pleasant outcomes in their lives. So um, when I first... Um, got connected with the Aboriginal Medical Service here locally. Uh, my first attempt at it was to literally stick my head in the door and say, hi, I'm Pete, and then run. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of a, uh, a strange situation. Someone said from behind the desk in the, in the office, said hello, and that was it. And I thought, oh, okay, I've made my first contact. But um, I understood their hesitancy, and they wanted to see that, um, that I was the real deal, that I was here to stay. And that I was genuinely here to help, and um, and that was I had to just do it in baby steps, and, and it's worked very well that that way. And I eventually plucked up the courage to walk in and say, "Look, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. Look, I'm not I'm not one of the, the local mob here, but I am part of this Kamilaroi nation that we are all part of." And I, and I was accepted, and uh, I, I I've got to say I was quite taken by the acceptance that I received uh, when I explained my story and, and uh, where I was from and why I was not from their community as such. Um, and uh, the warmth and generosity was just 
really quite uh, overwhelming. Um, I think they were pleased to see me. And that's my experience too, having not being a non-Indigenous person and going into Aboriginal communities is that that first hello sometimes is, oh, okay, here's another service, decided to come in and and be all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Let's see if they stick it out. Yes. And, um, and, and what I've observed after 10 and a half years at Aboriginal communities is that that certainly is the case, that services do sort of arrive and they've got a bright, shiny car and lots of bright, shiny ideas and they're, they're going to be there. And, you know, f- you know, whether it's weekly or fortnightly, then sort of by the third or fifth or sixth visits, things start to peter out. And I think people sort of go, yep, they came, they went. And and it is something that sort of happens, I think, maybe it might be the 10th time or the 18th time, maybe even the 30th time that you turn up and say, yep, I'm still here and I'm still going to keep yeah. coming here and I'm going to keep turning up and I'll sit in my chair even if I have to sit here all day and just to let you know that I'm committed. And the reception then is, is as you said, it, it's it's very warm and it's very receptive, but there has to be that, that initial period. And when you think about it, that would be the same for any community, really. That, Absolutely. You yeah. know, um, you know, they obviously expend a lot of energy to try and welcome people in. Um, but once you've done that 27 times, only to have that person suddenly disappear out of the service description just suddenly drops off the map. And I can understand why there's reservation each time a new service says, you know, hey, I'm here and I'm bright and I sh- I'm new, bright, shiny thing, you know, accept me, please. Um, yeah. But yeah. I think that, that they have to, to be patient with the community as well it has to work both ways. So I absolutely identify with what you're saying. Yeah. But I, and as, yeah. Sorry, as an Indigenous person too, I went through this process of what I this I call credentialing. And um, we, we all experienced it uh, as Indigenous psychologists where we go into a community and first of all, okay, yeah, I'm Pete Smith, but they then say, um, who's, who's your family? What's your family name? Where are you from? And they, they're kind of um, uh, situating you around who you are, who you belong to, and where you fit in. And I can remember the first time that happened to me. Uh, I went dry in the mouth, and I started getting <laughs> clammy hands, and I thought, oh, God, I'm going to flunk this. I'm going to, this is going to be terrible. Uh, but... Um, but no, it probably wasn't even really a test, though. It. it probably wasn't even a test. Probably, <laughs> like you said, it was probably just almost just to locate you in in that in their you know their sense of how everyone sits in, in as a nation and yeah. but for you it was like you know will I pass will I fail and I I think a lot of people think that so what happened did they did you pass oh I did pass thankfully <laughs> um yeah um I just ex- I basically had to give a little bit of my history as you can understand uh, our people have traditionally relied on oral history and so there are still people in communities who who still have this oral history all in their heads. They know who's related to who and who who fits in where. And um, they remembered. They remembered my grandfather, although he's been dead for wow. a long time. Yeah. And um, they said, oh, and one of the lovely things, and I went back, as we say, we go back to country where my mother was from. But one of the lovely things there is uh, the lady who uh, assisted me with a lot of this stuff said, we found relatives. We found some of your relatives we'd like you to meet. And that just blew me away. Wow. The people I've never met, but I'm connected. And so that process of, of having been removed and growing up, as I said, as a city kid and then going back to that, uh, out in the bush, um, you know, it can be 
a pretty wild place. We're up in the northwest in some of these, yes. these towns. And, um, yeah, and, and just getting accepted can be a bit of a process, but they, they were just so good and it, it made a lot of difference. And uh, I think... Um, Did it give you they, meaning to you for this? Uh, I mean, maybe you need to ex explain the concept of being on country to the listener and oh. then perhaps what that means to you when you, you did go back to country and meet some of these relatives. Sure. On country is a, a term that you will often hear Aboriginal people use. It, it really means, uh, it doesn't just mean in the country like we would normally say, oh, out of the city. Um, it's it's more than that to an Aboriginal person or, and to a Torres Strait Islander person for that matter too, um, where you go back to the land of your ancestors. It's where you belong. It's where you are connected. It's the place that gives you energy and life um, and we we see the land as our mother and it's the mother to whom we go to when we die and it's the mother who gave us life um, and uh, and so it's a very sacred thing for us and um, to go back to country um, is uh, is a very special moment like I'm living on Camilla Roy country now but not the country really of my ancestors it's another area or space in the Camilla Roy nation um, but I'm generally living on country. I was talking to a, a lady uh, at the AMS, the Aboriginal Medical Service, the other day, and, and she said I'd been feeling really ill. Uh, I'd been up to, uh, to Brisbane to, to visit some family, and I came back and um, got, into, uh, got into Tamworth, and uh, I started feeling better. And straight away I said to her, it's because you're back on country. And she said, you know, you're right. Others have said that to me too. And it although it might sound a little bit out of left field for a lot of us, um, for a lot of people listening to this, but um, it, there's something very palpable about about the land giving us energy and life. And um, yeah, going back there, and I, I go back uh, with my family here, um, I go back to where my mum's from quite regularly just to just to be connected, just to be in the bush, be in the, in the town, um, and to... Um, to just talk to the people and to and to share with them, it, it really means a great deal. And I think there's been a lot of research though, and documentaries like I, I've referred to a documentary called Happy Before in in previous podcasts. And what he discovered was that people um, who are grateful for what they have uh, are happy, but also people who feel connected or part of something. And yeah. I think that. Um, it, it's hard, like, you know, even traveling over to the UK and standing in front of buildings that are hundreds of years old, you know, like it's just, and, and just, you know, most streets in the center of London and how many hundreds of years old they are, you know, it, it's, and, and going to Rome and the Colosseum, like, I think that is something that some Australians find hard to grasp because we are such a young country that that, that, that depth of history and that depth of connection is maybe something that we feel we that's just not part of our psyche. But, of course, there's a group of Australians where there's thousands and thousands of years yeah. of depth of connection. So um, it would make sense, although, as you say, it's a bit left field, but having worked in um, you know, Aboriginal communities for the last 10 or so years, there, you know, hearing that and seeing that, um, 
that representation of what it means to be on country and how restorative and healing and connected that feeling. And in a way, you know, what what a beautiful thing that that it can be so restorative to be on country, you know, because some of us don't have that thing that can be so healing and restorative. We have to search for that and search for that to find what speaks to us and heals us. Whereas from a cultural perspective, what you're saying, it sounds like, is that for certainly the majority of Aboriginal people, they they have this place to return to. Absolutely. And uh, it's such a, a powerful element in, in our, our lives and our world. Um, when I'm when I'm speaking with Aboriginal people, sometimes I have to pull myself out of traditional psychologist role and think, hang on, this is someone who who is a part of a, uh, a collectivist, community-minded society. And uh, I have to stop and think, now, this person has come to me is emotionally unwell for possibly a whole lot of reasons. And I, unlike what I would do Sorry, say with a, um, a non-Indigenous Australian, I will ask this person, um, how are you connected to family, to country, to your culture, um, to the land on which you live, to your spirituality? Um, and they're questions that we don't normally ask as psychologists, and I've sometimes got to check myself a little bit too and remind myself that um, I'm dealing with someone's overall social and emotional well-being here, not just about a disorder or an ailment or um, or something that may be troubling at the moment that, that is presenting as certain symptoms, say, to a, a GP or a psychologist or other um, health professional. So okay. it's... Can you explain that collective idea to us a little bit? Okay. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are part of really what we would call a, um, a collective society. We um, are a part of, um, we're interconnected with each other. We have very um, complex networks of kinship. Um, we, and that's, that goes back to tradi traditional tribal times. Um, but but also continues very much to, to the, the day. People will often talk about um, uncles and aunts and cousins who may not be necessarily blood relations, but are in some way connected uh, by being a part of that community. And, and what, sorry, uh, and what I noticed sure. um, to explain it as well is that, for example, if someone's sick in hospital, you know, whether they're from an indigenous background or not, might you know, you might have people come and visit, but from an Indigenous perspective, if someone is quite unwell in hospital and maybe perhaps mm. even dying, there might be hundreds of Aboriginal people outside the hospital. Absolutely. Yeah, hundreds, wait, you know, all part of this huge collective coming together to support extended family, aunts, uncles, as you say, in that process. And it's not, it's not one at a time, it's not... It, it, like we might all feel part of a collective, but in demonstration, what I've observed, it is quite different that that collective is truly a collection of people coming together as a big group demonstrating their support. And I guess the same is at funerals. And I'm not sure if I'm correct mm. here, but also they often wear the same colours to the yeah. funeral or the same colour tie. Is that right? I, look, I've seen it in some cases. I'm not sure it's it's a general kind of rule, but it's certainly that identity and that interconnectedness you're talking about there, um, where if one person is unwell, um, then 
sometimes others will become quite unwell too and they will even display physical symptoms or psychological symptoms and uh, uh, it, it's that how we interact with each other um, and uh, things such as sorry business or funeral time um, can be quite a devastating time for families and, and quite extended families. Um, I, I've seen here for example um, someone uh, then there'll be a funeral and, and all, all of the people will be gone. They'll, they'll shut down um, their businesses, their work, they'll be away for a day or so and um, more than a few days to, to support one another and support the family. Um, and so it, it does, it affects everybody. Um, but yeah, the, the collective thing too has its, um, its, its responsibilities and its obligations. Um, and um, it's something that we we all we, we need to be very conscious of when working, as I say, holistically with um, with people. You mentioned there about hospitals too. Um, it's not unknown for us psychologists, for example, to to be called in and um, someone's in some rather deep distress in a, in a hospital situation, and uh, we might even consider, say, bringing a traditional healer in. Which is not something you do every day of the week, but um, it's it's something that uh, has meaning for that person and will often contribute to their overall well-being. Um, or if there is someone within the within the community who is seen as some kind of a healer, healing person, um, that that's important to that person, they will be brought in. Um, it's and it's just about being respectful and aware that uh, there can be a whole lot of dynamics going on for people when they may be unwell. Yeah, um, so, I mean, I'm, in terms of differences, working as a psychologist, um, I remember working with a, a wonderful lady and she talked about being in a very difficult time in her life and she was away, she was off country and she was at, at a, a hospital isolated from family and she was travelling with another family member who was unwell and she left the hospital and went for a walk on the grounds of the hospital. So she left the building, I should say, and went out for a walk and she sat down and she looked up at a tree and a bird, I can't think, it was an Australian native bird, maybe it was a kookaburra, I can't quite remember, yeah. Yeah. Um, or a galah or a cockatoo, I can't quite remember. And that bird came and, and landed not far from her and she was and she felt in that moment that she was quite sure that that was her mother um, sending her reassurance or who was her mother. And I think one of the differences is that if you take the psychology profession quite literally and someone saying to me, I believe that that bird was my mother, then mm. obviously the response would be different. You'd be like, okay, so this person um, is believes that this bird is her mother. Whereas when you look at it from um, an Aboriginal cultural perspective, it was quite relevant and quite spiritual and quite, and quite coherent that there wasn't sure. any psychotic issues associated with that at all. Would, would you agree? Absolutely. Um, one of the things we look out for as well is sometimes family members during sorry time will have visions of the, the departed uh, family member and um, it can be quite common that they that they will see, they will hear voices, and, and of course we as psychologists have got to step back from that stuff and and be very careful about diagnosing something psychotic going on here. Um, so, what do you mean by sorry time? Can you explain that concept a little bit? Sure. Sorry time is 
at the time around the loss of uh, a family or community member, where all of the community comes together to to share the grief um, and to to be with each other, to support each other during the time of grief. And sorry time can go on for some days. Uh, it's not just as we would experience, say, uh, the time around the uh, the preparation for a funeral and the actual funeral ceremony, and and then maybe that day, uh, and then things kind of return to as they were. Um, sorry time could go on for some days where the, tellings of the, the telling of the stories is very important. Um, we're great storytellers and, uh, and we love to share the stories of, of uh, our loved ones and those who've departed. And, uh, and we also have that sense of our loved ones uh, being around us, um, constantly being around us in spirit. And, um, and so um, sorry time is a part of all of that. It's, it's that um, taking lots of time to, to to grieve, and when we look at it from even traditional, if you like, Western uh, models of grief and loss, it's a it's a very healthy way to do it, as as you can appreciate. We're, yeah. We, we take time to grieve, to go through the feelings, to to understand what we're going through. Sometimes we in the in uh, traditional Western models are a little bit sanitized about. Um, how we deal with uh, death and dying, and um, we could probably learn a lot from from uh, the traditional ways, the indigenous ways of Australia. Absolutely. So, so Pete, what have you learned about other people through your experiences of being a Camilla Roy man and a psychologist? Wow, I think the main thing I've learned is that the people themselves are my teachers. Um, and um, like I said to you earlier, I, um, I I grew up in the city, so moving even to a rural environment for me was a learning curve. Um, and so uh, the people who've been coming to see me, like right across the board, not just Indigenous people, but um, my um, my clients in general could be farmers and farmers' wives and families of farmers and all these people that have lived on the land for for decades and generations and. And um, I've had to learn what life is like for them. And likewise for the Indigenous Australians, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. What has life been like for them? I know what life has been like for me as an Indigenous Australian. I know what my story is. But my story is different to their story. And having learning to be patient, to give them time to tell their story with its pain, with its, uh, its loss, um, all of the things that, that make up who they are. One of the things that they they often feel grateful for is that someone actually sits and listens to them. Uh, they've probably had a lot of people over the years and agencies over the years telling them telling them what they think they should be doing and how they should be going about their lives. And it's important. And I found the big lesson for me uh, has been to really give them time to listen and to listen deeply, to listen. If you like, as we say, um, as Indigenous psychologists, to um, to listen deeply. Um, uh, deep listening is something where I don't just listen to the words of what someone is saying. I'm listening to the content, the the meaning of what they're saying, the story behind what they're saying, the um, the all all that it means for them and the, and their, their their background, their community. Um, I can talk to someone from Moree and they, they're going to be different from someone who's come from Narrabri or Corindai or Gunnedah. So everyone is a little bit different. And I can't in any way presume to be any expert 
on these people. And if I come in trying to be the know-all expert, I'll be I'll be out of town on the first train. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and, and that's just arrogance, and mm. it would be wrong to do that. Yes. Um, I've got to allow them the, the space and the time to to tell their story and to. Um, I guess find the humility in myself yes. to uh, to pull back a little bit and to give them time. That's awesome. Yeah. What about you? What have you learned about yourself coming back to country or close to country and being a psychologist? What have you learned about yourself? I've coming back to country has been for me a spiritual journey too. Like I said to you in my introduction, spirituality in my earlier years was important as well mm. in, a in a traditional way, uh, in a, um, if you like, a Western traditional way. Yes. Um, but um, I've always had that sense that of the interior world and, and spirituality is important to me. Um, but being back on country um, has been a most life-giving experience for me. Um, I, I love working with Indigenous communities. Um, it gives me a lot of satisfaction. Um, and um, I, I'm just happy to go there and to just be around. Um, sometimes people don't turn up or they don't turn up on time. And you know yourself, a psychologist, yeah. we, you know, we, we could tear our hair out sometimes. But uh, to me, it's teaching me something just to be patient and yes. to, um, but to even just to be around the people that I'm working with, say, the Aboriginal Medical Service, and to interact with him because they are also. Um, because I come from that, um, I guess that pastoral care model, they I see them also as people in my ambit of, of work as well who are important. And um, I think it's being back on country has has taught me that um, yeah we're all different, um, and my story is important too. Um, and uh, they they help me to grow as, and I hope that I help them to grow too. Yes. But, uh, so what do you do to keep yourself healthy and grounded? What are some things that you do? Oh, okay. I probably do a, a lot of the the usual kinds of things, like exercise is important to me. Um, good diet is too. Um, and, uh, and just having a good balanced diet, uh, being careful of the usual um, risk factor things like salt and sugar and, and fats and all those things. Um, Exercise is important. I exercise every day. I try to walk. I walk to work too, by the way. Um, people look at me like, why do you walk to work? But um, I, uh, I've got about a 10-minute walk to work and I go backwards and forwards during the day a little bit. Um, I ride a bike. I, I also meditate um, in a spiritual way. I have an interest in reading spirituality and spiritual writings. Um, Any particular area or background? Uh I try to be pretty diverse in all that. Um, traditional spirituality, I like to um, um, I like to read about um, Eastern spirituality. Um, I teach a lot of that in terms of meditative techniques that I'm teaching people in therapy, um, and I'm finding that's very helpful. And, and there's a lot that uh, we can all learn from that. Some of the traditional Western styles of uh, spirituality in terms of meditation and, and reflection. Um, and uh, I guess mindfulness that we use as psychologists is, a, is an Eastern spirituality, form of Eastern spirituality. Um, I do that every day, um, and I have since I was a teenager. Um, it's been an important part of my growth and development. People often ask me, how do you, how 
you sit there and listen to these people every day complaining about things. And I said, well, okay. But I, I have to recharge myself too, and that's how I do it. Wow, that's amazing. I've so loved interviewing you, Pete. It's it's really great to get a, a, as you said, that sense of the interior world is what you talked about in terms of spirituality, but also in the context of Indigenous people. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. And I've loved having you, the TAP listener, with me today too. So please spread the word and tell your friends to listen to and subscribe to TAP in iTunes or at thewellnesscouch.com. And don't forget to give the show a five-star rating if you liked it. So thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this Wellness Catch podcast brought to you by Audible. Do you find that you just don't have time to read all the awesome books that you hear mentioned on The Wellness Couch? Well, Audible might just have the answer. Audible is offering the Wellness Couch listeners a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can get books like Eat Right for Your Blood Type, Why We Get Fat by Gary Torbs, Paleo Diet for Athletes, or even The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. So to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash The Wellness Couch. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash The Wellness Couch for your free audiobook. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.